bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. This is the Tuesday, February 8, 2022 podcast. Today, we're going to talk about the basics of the federal historic tax credit. This week's podcast is one of several podcasts that we're recording as part of a series that provides information on the basics of various federal community development tax incentives. Now, the federal historic tax credit is the oldest federal community development tax credit. The historic tax credit was created in 1978, but it's gone through several iterations since then. The most recent as a result of major tax legislation at the end of 2017. That legislation ended the 10% credit for non-residential buildings placed in service before 1936. And the same bill changed the 20% credit for certified historic structures from a one-year credit to a five-year credit. More specifically, uh, under the legislation enacted as part of the 2017 tax reform, an eligible renovation claims a credit equal to 4% times the qualified rehabilitation cost every year for five years for a total of 20% of eligible costs as a tax credit. Now, the public policy behind the creation and continuation of the historic tax credit is to help developers offset the higher costs associated with preserving and retaining the historic character of existing buildings. Now, to further offset those costs, more than 40 states have also enacted a parallel state historic tax credit that offsets state level taxes. That is far and away more than the number of states that have enacted their own version of the low housing tax credit or new market tax credits. Now, before introducing our podcast guest, I did want to also note that the historic tax credit is a major driver of economic activity. For example, According to an annual report from the National Park Service and Rutgers University, fiscal year 2020, the federal store tax credit led to the investment of over $7.3 billion that year and generated 122,000 jobs. And over its 44-year history, the store tax credit has incented $181 billion in investment and created nearly 3 million jobs. Now, let me introduce my guest. My guest today is Greg Clements. He's a partner of mine based in Novogratz Dover, Ohio office. Greg works with clients in new market tax credits, renewable energy tax credits, and the Opportunity Zones Incentive. But perhaps most significantly for today's discussion, Greg is one of our resident experts about all things historic tax credit related. Greg works with developers, investors, and other stakeholders who finance properties with equity raised from syndication or monetization of federal and state historic tax credits. Now we're going to start today's discussion by looking at who might benefit from using the historic tax credit. Then we'll review what makes a building eligible for the credit, which might surprise many of you. Then we'll talk about the range of expenditures that benefit from the credit. And finally, we'll wrap up with a discussion of who should be on your team, what it's like to work with the federal state government agencies involved. And probably most importantly, how Novogratz can help you. Now, there's a lot to discuss. So if you're ready, let's get started. So Greg, welcome to Tax Run Tuesday. I think this is your first time in the podcast. It is. Thanks for having me, Mike. I really appreciate it. 
So Greg, during the introduction, I did provide a brief overview of the historic tax credit. And with that said, though, I would like to start by asking you a question that I'm presuming many of our listeners are thinking right now. And that is, so why or how does a developer use the historic tax credit? Well, the historic tax credit's available to claim for owners of historic uh, buildings that have a certified rehabilitation of that building. And as you pointed out, it's available over five years now. And it is, it is important to try to have the necessary capital available to rehab the building before the building's place of service because you need to pay for it. So developers can use the historic tax credits and monetize those by allowing investors to enter into partnerships with them and provide equity to help pay for the rehab of the, of the building. As you pointed out, there are federal tax credits available and also state tax credits, depending on what state you're in. They're not always just called state historic tax credits. There are many different kinds. So it's important to look at all the incentives in the location of where your building is, is at. And if you're new to the concept uh, about using historic tax credits or other incentives, there are a lot of resources that Novogratic has inclusive of a historic tax credit handbook. There's a booklet available. And we also host webinars from time to time. And you can normally count on our, our annual historic tax credit conference in the fall, which not only acts as a great learning opportunity, but also uh, an opportunity to network with all the industry participants. Right. Yes, that's uh, always a great conference. And this year it'll be in October. So we encourage listeners to join us at that conference. It will be both uh, virtual and in person. But maybe as a follow-up on the historic tax credit, I did uh, note early in my introduction how many states, more states have a state-level historic tax credits than have low capacity tax credits or numeric tax credits, state level. Uh, but the low capacity tax credit, numeric tax credit, those are competitive and that you have to apply for them uh, in order to be eligible for the federal credit. Uh, can maybe explain to listeners one of the benefits of the historic tax credit is that you don't actually have to apply and compete. You have to apply, but you don't have to compete. That's right. It's the inventory of, of historic tax credits is only limited by the inventory of historic buildings. And I think as we're going to discuss in, in a little bit here, the amount of historic buildings is, is growing because more developers are saying my building is significant and it should be included on the list of, of buildings that should be preserved. So there is no, as you point out, there's no competitive application, but you do have to have your building on a qualify to be a historic building. So let's talk about that for a moment. I will note that many state level historic tax credits or uh, a credit that a building might be eligible for that isn't necessarily called an historic tax credit. It could be go under a different name. Many of those do have a cap and you do have a competition there, but the federal doesn't have any type of competition, even though there's an application process. But let's start by the, the broad question. Not all renovations of all buildings are eligible for the historic tax credit. Let's start with the building itself because there's the building itself has to qualify and the renovation has to qualify. So in terms of the building itself, 
how does a listener know when that their building is eligible for the historic tax credit from an initial qualification perspective? Sure. It's, it's not always obvious. It could be a surprise, but generally if the building is listed on the national register or is located in a registered historic district and is listed as being of significance to that district, it would qualify. Developers, when they're trying to determine if they don't, if they meet the historic criteria, they'll hire a historic tax credit consultant that will help prepare the part one of, of the National Park, Park Service application to determine if the building is exceptionally important. And there are a lot of different criteria that could qualify that. It could be a famous architect or style. Someone could have been born, lived, or died in the building or a building that is exceptionally important. And the scale isn't necessarily on the national level. It could be exceptionally important on the local or state level as well. So it's important to work with a historic tax credit consultant in order to even determine if your building is is eligible for the historic tax credit. And as you point out that there is this national register of historic places, and a building might be on it already, or you might be seeking to apply to get on it. If your building is not on it already, and that's your point about working with a historic uh, preservation consultant who can help identify, are you on it or could you get on it? And as you also know, if there are historic districts, in which case if your building is significant to the district and can qualify that way as well. So let's start with the building. Assume for the moment that the building is qualified or is uh, eligible to get on the register, <clears throat> uh, maybe you could give our listeners a sense of scale in terms of if I'm engaging in this rehabilitation, not just any rehabilitation will qualify. So talk a little bit about, you know, how you determine if the rehabilitation you're going to undertake will make your project eligible for historic tax credits. Sure. Well, as, as many developers know, every, every rehab of a building is different in size and scope. And so there's a wide range of qualified rehab expenditures, sizes, depending on the size and the scope of the rehabilitation. But uh, uh, let's talk about what a qualified rehab expenditure is. And what that is, is those are amounts that are incurred in connection with the rehabilitation of a qualified rehabilitated building that have a useful life of over 15 years and are depreciated over a straight line method. So if we think about what that means, there's gonna be a lot of hard costs, demolition, any abatement that needs done inside the building. And then things like drywall, floors, elevators, but there'll also be costs included in that that are soft costs that are necessary for the development of the building and get capitalized into the building, like insurance and taxes and utilities and sometimes even interest. Now, it's important to note that personal property is excluded from qualified rehab expenditures. Um, you had asked about there being a minimum amount of work required, and there is a requirement it's called the substantial rehabilitation requirement. And generally, what that means is that the qualified rehab expenditures incurred need to be greater than the adjusted basis of the building when you start 
the rehabilitation. And that's, that's a test that gets done closer to the placement in the service date. And uh, I think that topic alone could be its own podcast. <laughs> this is the basics. <laughs> yeah. So it is designed to be, as you note, substantial renovation. So that's the threshold there. So you can't just be making small improvements uh, to the building and be eligible. And then as you know, it is building costs. It is supposed to be offsetting the cost of retaining the historic character of the building, not the personal property in the building. So personal property is not eligible. And I'd also just note that, you know, listers could think about other costs that you wouldn't expect to be eligible, like expansion. It's not a, it's not a, a credit that you get for building, adding floors to a building, you know, retain the historic character of a building by adding floors. So expansion costs aren't eligible. And then you did mention demolition costs sort of associated with work inside the building, which is eligible, but as you know, before listers benefit, as you'd expect demolition of parts of the exterior of the buildings aren't eligible because the idea is to preserve buildings, not to demolish buildings. So that those types of costs are, you know, there's types of demolition costs that are eligible and types of demolition costs that, that are not, but as you know, this isn't all, this isn't a advanced podcast on the historic tax credits. We can't go into all the range of issues around defining qualified rehabilitation expenditures, but that is one of the reasons why assembling your team, which we'll talk about in a moment is so important because you know, every dollar of cost that is eligible for the historic credit does mean you'll get 20% more credits. So it is a very important, uh, calculation to make. And it's also one that your investors will be focused on, but let's, let's move beyond that. And let's now talk about some of the key players at the federal and state level that administer this credit. You know, I, I did we did discuss that it's not a competitive credit at the federal level in the sense that you're competing with others for a limited supply. It is in some ways an as of right, uh, but you do have to meet various qualifications. Uh, and there are two key agencies uh, that oversee uh, and administer the federal historic tax credit at the state level. There's a state historic preservation offices or officers. Uh, often go by the acronym that is S-H-P-O, pronounced SHPO. So the SHPOs play a role. And then at the federal level, you have the National Park Service within the Department of Interior or the NPS. And maybe you could explain, Greg, the role of the SHPO, the State Historic Preservation Officers, and the National Park Service or NPS. Sure. Uh, this is in an effort to be eligible again for the credit. The work has to be a, a certified rehabilitation. So both the SHPO and the National Park Service have to certify the rehab. And that process is done through a three-part application. Let me actually, um, just before you jump into the three parts, sure. maybe explain to listeners why they're renovation needs to be certified. Oh, it's a, it's a requirement that, that, you know, in order to maintain the significant or the historic significance of the rehab, the IRS who you end up claiming the credit, they don't have the expertise to know whether you had a certified rehab on your building or not. And so the state historic preservation office and the national park service provide that oversight and certify and they end up 
having a visit and and they say, yes, the work that you did was the work that you intended to do and is ultimately preserving the historic nature of the building. Right. With an emphasis on the fact that the Congress didn't want to give a credit for renovation costs that didn't preserve the historic significance of a building. So it's the way that the federal government monitors that you did preserve uh, the historic character of the building such that you are eligible to claim the credit. But anyways, I, inter I interrupted you. Please discuss the three parts of the application process with the National Park Service. Sure. So the part one is the evaluation of significance. This is the part where you would work with your historic tax credit consultant to determine if your building is significant. And then at the end of that part one, you would have a cert certificate that says, yes, my building is significant. And then we can move to part two. Part two is the very big document. And this is called the description of the rehabilitation. And this application typically will include many pictures and many descriptions about the areas inside the building, what's historically significant and how the developer is going to preserve and rehabilitate those unique um, items in the building. It could be tile, it could be windows, it could be terracotta that has to be refurbished. And, and so that description of rehab part two application seems to be a little bit of, of back and forth developer will work with their consultant and their architect and, and come up with a plan and submit it. And then the state historic preservation office will review it and provide comments. And then they'll work together to end up getting to what the ultimate description of the rehabilitation is. And then from there, the work will be performed. And that's a big point is that you technically don't have to go through part two before you start the rehab, but you know, any investor is going to invest in the building <laughs> if they don't go through part two before they do the rehab, because that's where you work with the state of historic preservation officer and the national park service to ensure that they support the work that you're doing. And as you point out, oftentimes there could be negotiations on the type of work you're going to do that the National Park Service and or the State of Preservation Officer wants to see in order to uh, agree that your uh, renovation will satisfy their requirements. Right. You'd hate to have to do some work over again if they didn't agree. Or do work that would cause you to never be able to comply <laughs> such that right. you get no historic credits. Right. And then part three? Part three is the request for certification of the completed work. So that normally comes after the building is placed in service. And it's, it's really the, it's really the developer telling the SHPO and the National Park Service, Hey, we're done. Come look at it. Make sure you agree and sign off. So all parts of the application are submitted to the SHPO where the staff members review the application for completeness and ac accuracy, and then the SHPO then sends the application components to the National Park Service with a recommendation. Um, and part three is really what the focus is ultimately on getting. And that's the part where part one, your building's going to be eligible. Part two, what you plan to do, the cost you plan to incur will be eligible for the historic credit. And then part three is after the fact, 
uh, getting the National Park Service to say, yes, you're eligible for the historic credit. Right. And without, and without ever getting a part three, you'd never be eligible for the historic credit. Correct? Right. That's right. The, the developer and the, the, actually the entity that owns the building and will report the qualified rehab expenditures on their tax return ultimately will need to fix the part three to their tax return. I think it's within 36 months of, of putting the QREs on the, on the tax return. So that part three is the communication from the national park service to the IRS that is a certified rehabilitation. So let's talk a bit about the team that uh, a developer should be assembling if they've not been involved in historic credits before. If they have been involved, then they most certainly have this team. And one of the themes of the various Tax Strike Tuesday podcasts is that a lot of what we talk about, you know, is complex if you don't have experience in it. But if you have a lot of experience in it, it can become relatively routine. And our advice to listeners is always to ensure that you're working with players for which these various incentives are routine uh, and not new. So maybe you could discuss, Greg, some of the key players in an historic uh, renovation that, you know, obviously you have, you know, a, there are a lot of players that don't need to have a lot of experience with the historic credit, but there are some players that you want to make sure do have experience. So maybe you could discuss those players. Right. I think you're going to need a, a, a good team. As you pointed out, you're in order to identify if you have a historic building in the beginning, we talked about historic tax credit consultants and, and determining whether the building is significant, uh, and, and historic. So they're going to be very important. You're going to need an attorney and you may have two attorneys. You may have an attorney who you work with normally on, on a, all your development activities, but you also may need to hire a historic tax credit attorney, someone who's got experience in that area, and they may work together in, in tandem. If you've never had experience with, with syndicating historic tax credits, you may consider hiring a syndication consultant who could help identify investors for you. You're going to need an accountant to do a, a number of things, inclusive of financial projections, and cost certifications and audits and tax returns potentially. And then depending on what fees and costs you have included in, in your construction budget, you may need an appraiser as well to not only help you appraise what it is you should pay for the building to the extent you don't own it already, but also you may need them to give a reasonableness opinion on any related party fees uh, and costs that you have included, that'll be a requirement of your, of your investor. So that, that's good. Did you want to add something there? I was just going to go into the structures then. Well, maybe before we talk about the structures, I'd also know, you know, beyond and you said you may need attorney experience with historic tax credits. I would say you do need yeah. an attorney. You're being gentle. <laughs> I would say you do need a attorney experience with historic tax credits. You might also, you might have a specific role for them, uh, but you definitely want to have an attorney experience with historic tax credits. If for no other reason than the various structures that you're going to talk about in a moment, that these aren't new structures to them, they know what the footfalls are, because there are a number of areas where you could commit a footfall, uh, which you don't want to do. And also if you're working with a experienced historic tax credit attorney, they will have a lot of sample documents and they'll know what your structure 
is they'll know what structure might be best for your given transaction. And they'll have documents they've used for other transactions that they can then adopt to your particular uh, transaction. I'd also note that from a contractor perspective, I'd also encourage listeners to work with a contractor that has experience with historic renovations. And if, if they don't have experience with historic renovations, there may be steps along the way it, that, you know, as they're building the building that they, you know, c commit some footfalls that'll lead to challenges, getting your renovation certified. And in addition to the contractor having historic experience, I think also the architect, you clearly want to have an architect that has a lot of experience working with the national park service and state historic preservation officer with respect to renovations, because they will know you know, what's allowable and not allowable to a certain extent, which would go a long way to going through and getting your part two completed. But please talk a bit about different structure types. Once again, this isn't an advanced podcast. This is a start attached about basics, but maybe you can just say a few words about some of the different financing structures. Sure. There, there are really two. The first is a joint venture where the investor and the developer are partners, most typically in a partnership and the, that partnership owns the historic building and completes the, the rehabilitation of that building. And then the owners, the, the, the investor and the developer, you know, end up claiming the qualified rehab ex expenditures at that level and, and, and it just flows through. So it's a one entity joint venture structure. The next one is more exciting. It involves a lease structure where the developer effectively has ownership in the entity that's performing the rehabilitation. And then before the building is placed to service, leases the building and the rehabilitation to an entity the investor owns. And then the lessor makes an election to pass the qualified rehab expenditures to the lessee through the lease. And then the lessee would then sublease to the ultimate users of, of the building. Right. Thank you for that. So basically, like you say, property partnership, if you will, that the investor and the developer are partners in, or the investor, as you said, master leases the building from the ownership entity, uh, either directly or through a joint venture with the developer potentially. And so let's talk a little bit more about some of the services that you provide or Novogratic more broadly provides with respect to an historic cash credit transaction and maybe do it from a life cycle perspective in terms of, you know, how early does a developer typically reach out to you through the development process, through placement and service, you know, even going out to, you know, after you go five years out and claim the credits. Uh, to the extent that an investor wants to exit that time. Sure. I, I think you need to, as we said a couple minutes ago, you need to assemble your team as early as possible. And your attorney and your accountant are going to be pretty important to get hired early on. Is there determining the, the structure that you, that you go down, whether it be the, the, the ownership of the building or the lease structure 
is, is going to be important to decide early on. So initial structuring work with a developer is something I like to focus on. And that's the, the accountant, the, the attorney and the developer together will work on the deal structure and compile a structure chart. What, what, uh, the best financing might be for that particular transaction. And each deal is going to be different depending on the kind of incentives and the ultimate participants you have in the capital stack. So I'll provide financial for forecasting services that end up being a compilation. And then there'll be a process when that starts. And then a little bit of period of time where you work through financial closing and that's where you bring your lender to the table. You bring your tax credit investor to the table. And at some point in time, there'll be a financial closing. And, and then the developer will start rehabbing the project. And when that's going on, I work with the developers to stay organized about keeping your, your invoices, all your costs incurred, things of that nature, because the next step that I normally would work on is a cost certification, which is normally required when you syndicate the uh, historic tax credits with an, a tax credit investor. That's normally done as when that's completed, then the radical work with developers to provide annual audit and tax work with those developers, make sure all the filings are required filings are done correctly. And more broadly, Novogratic does have an appraisal services group. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, potential services that they could provide are appraisals for the acquisition and reasonableness opinions for related party contracts and fees. And then Mike, as you pointed out, once the building's placed in the service and we're doing five or six years of these audits and tax returns at some point, the investor and the developer decide that they need to go their separate ways. And at some point there is calculations about, you know, how to make that happen. So we do some level of tax planning for exits for our developer clients as well. Right. And that exit is, or one version, because you never know what's going to be the actual exit at the end of five years. I mentioned five years because that's the vesting period for the credits. It's when you claim the credits and the credits invest over five years, investors won't leave until they've gotten all their credits uh, and the credits have fully vested. But as you mentioned, the financial forecast really is starts at the very beginning, takes you through the development phase, <clears throat> takes you through lease up, through operations for five plus years, and then will oftentimes model one possible exit, but there's several ways in which investors uh, can exit or choose to stay in. So it's not a given that what is in the forecast is what will happen, but it is a version because you want to be, the forecast is designed to be the life cycle of the development. In order to have the life cycle of development, you have to have an exit that is initially forecasted. So, you know, how early in the process do you generally recommend that a developer reach out to you if they'd have a, they're thinking maybe historic tax credits are possible or they don't know if they're possible or not, you know, when in the course of that, should they reach out to you? I would say the earlier, the better. And, and it. It doesn't necessarily mean that we have to start work at, at, at some level, it's just conversation 
a developer may have a building at a certain location and and we could just have a brainstorming conversation about have you thought about this incentive have you thought about that incentive have you looked at opportunity zones have you looked at new markets just just a conversation to start to kick off and and even then you know that that's going to be a key conversation when you can you assemble your team so i would say the earlier you know that you want to rehab a building the better to reach out so there's a Obviously, a lot more to the historic tax credit, as we mentioned several times in the course of the podcast that, you know, there's other kind of more advanced future podcasts that we can have, but you did mention that we have a handbook. We do have a booklet, but we do have our annual conference, which will be in October of this year. I'll focus on the historic tax credit, which are good ways to get up to speed on the federal historic credit. But I'm sure that there are some listeners that are going to reach out to you directly for counsel. And to help assess whether or not the historic tax credit would work uh, for one of their buildings or a building they're looking to acquire. So if you could share your email address, and I will note to our listeners, I'll put that Greg's email address in the show notes as well. Sure. It's G-R-E-G-O-R-Y dot C-L-E-M-E-N-T-S at N-O-V-O-C-O dot com. So that's Gregory dot Clements at Novaco dot com. So thank you for that. And as I mentioned, I'll share your email in at today's show notes as well. Uh, so please do stick around, Greg, for today's off mic segment, where I get to ask you a few off topic questions so you could share some wisdom uh, or advice with me to the listeners. And speaking of our listeners, uh, please be sure to tune in to next week's episode of Tax Credit Tuesday. I'm going to be speaking with my partner, John Shreddy, about Novogratz's upcoming special report and Qualified Opportunity Fund Investment. The report will go through the end of 2021. We're gonna talk about investment trends and how the Opportunity Zones equity investing marketplace is changing over time. The report will be released that morning, so you'll wanna tune in to hear some of the highlights. And you can be sure that you're notified of that episode and each week's episode by following or subscribing to the Tasked Red Tuesday podcast. Go to www.novaco.com slash podcast to subscribe to and stream the show on our website. You can also follow or subscribe to Tax Red Tuesday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Radio Public. So now I'm pleased to reach our off mic section where I and our listeners get some off topic advice and words of wisdom from our podcast guests. So I'll actually start, Greg, with asking you what's your favorite podcast and you can't say tax credit Tuesday. <laughs> I'm tempted to, I, I actually have a podcast that I like to listen to and normally a podcast when I'm outside doing yard work, there's a, there's one called uh, wine for normal people. And it's hosted by Elizabeth Schneider, who has a book of the same title. And she speaks about all things, the wine industry. So normal people can understand. And includes a good amount of history about why things are grown in certain regions and how you know, the agricultural shift over the last couple hundred years. And so it's really, it's really fun. Uh, it's co-hosted by her, I think it's her husband who doesn't really know much about wine and he makes a lot of jokes and asks <laughs> questions. So I, I think it's fun and informative. I've learned a lot and now I actually know what I'm looking at when I look at a wine list at a restaurant or go in the grocery store. So it's helpful. Great. 
So let's get this, some items that are, some might say more practical, maybe, maybe they're less practical than that. <laughs> it has to do with your uh, best time management tip or one of them. Yeah. So I function every day, mostly by using Smartsheet and my Outlook calendar. I don't think I could handle uh, life without it. Those two items keep me really organized. And I think the most important part of that was getting everybody on my team including my family, to be on the same platform, it was a huge blessing. It was hard to stay organized before. So do you have your family on Smartsheet? Not on Smartsheet, but on, <laughs> on Outlook say, Calendar, for sure. For you. <laughs> <laughs> if you have tips on how to get my family on Smartsheet, that would be great. Uh, yeah, Smartsheets is definitely a very useful tool. So my third, and fortunately for you, but not for us, my final question, what's the best or one of the best leadership lessons you've learned? I think the one I like the best is, is one that you always say, and I've heard a lot of different people say it in many different ways, but basically it boils down to don't be the smartest person in the room and all team members are valuable and, you know, we all are smarter together than any one individual. So I think that one rings true to me most frequently. I definitely, as, as you know, cause you've probably said lots of times, it's definitely important to remember that uh, any group is more knowledgeable than any one person in the group. And the greatest challenge is how to get that knowledge to percolate up so you can capitalize on it. So thank you again, Greg, for joining me for your inaugural Tashra Tuesday podcast. And to our listeners, I'm Michael Nevergradic. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogradic and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratic & Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.